It's time for Truth Unfiltered with Pastor Chad Harvey. If you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, you ought to be working harder than everybody else, not for your salvation, but out of your salvation. And that's what happened to these people. They were working hard. And yet if we're not careful, our busyness, our serving Jesus can take the place of our relationship with Jesus. I see it happen all the time. I see Christians working hard for Jesus, but that love for Jesus has grown cold. And that's what happened to these people. That's Chad Harvey. And welcome to today's broadcast of Truth Unfiltered. We're glad you're here. Pastor Chad is the teaching pastor at Cross Assembly Church in Raleigh, leading you to a deeper understanding of the Bible by putting the scriptures in context, emphasizing how God's word applies to our daily lives. We invite you to join us and allow the Holy Spirit to bring truth unfiltered to you. And now, here's Pastor Chad. David Jeremiah talks about uh, um, G. Campbell Morgan. He was Morgan was a great preacher back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. In fact, I uh, I met his grandson one time and interviewed G. Campbell Morgan's grandson. He had a friend. And his friend had a 10-year-old daughter, and he loved that 10-year-old daughter. In fact, the highlight of this man's day was when he would come home from work and go for a walk with his 10-year-old daughter. They had a wonderful, wonderful relationship. And suddenly he felt estranged from her. He, he couldn't sense what happened, but he could tell she was pulling away from him. There was some distance. She, she seemed to, sh- to shun him. When he would go for a walk and invite her, she would find excuses not to go for a walk with with her dad. He knew he couldn't push her, but it it really grieved his heart. And then one day, it was his birthday, and he he gets up in the morning, and his daughter walks in with a present. And she's smiling, and she says, happy birthday, daddy. And he opens up that present, and there's a, a, a pair of beautiful slippers in that box. He said, honey, these are great, beautiful. He said, where did you buy them? She said, Daddy, I didn't buy them. I made you these slippers. And he said, so that's what you've been doing for the last three months. And she said, yes, but how did you know it's been three months? And he said, because for the last three months, I have felt distant from you, honey. He said, I love these slippers, but next time, buy me the slippers and spend time with me. I would rather have my child than anything you could make for me. And as as we read about the church at Ephesus, I get the feeling Jesus is saying the same thing. I love you. You serve me. You're doing a great job, but I would rather have you than yours. I wonder if he says to Cross Assembly, thank you for serving me. Y'all doing great, but I want you more than anything you could do for me. And so I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Now, remember the background. We're going through the book of Revelation. And Revelation is an interesting book. It's the only book in the Bible that says, hey, read me. I'm special. You'll have a special blessing if you study me, okay? And it's the only book in the Bible that actually gives you the outline of the book at the beginning of the book. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus says to John, John, write the things, here you go, which you have seen, and the things, number two, which are, and then number three, the things that will take place after this. That's the outline of the book of Revelation. Number one, the things that you have seen, that's this picture that John has of Jesus that we talked about last week in chapter one. That which you've seen is chapter one. The things which are, 
That's in chapters 2 and 3. Things that are going on at that present time at churches on the mainland in modern-day Turkey. And then number 3, the things that will take place, that's chapter 4 through the rest of the book. That's the outline of the book of Revelation. The things that you've seen, chapter 1. The things that are, chapters 2 and 3. And the things that will be, chapter 4 through the rest of the book. Now, I kind of downplayed this last week, but it's, it's really kind of sad. Remember, John is a 90-year-old man. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I've been put in prison because I preach the word of God. A 90-year-old man is put in prison, and it's not just any prison. It's basically Alcatraz. It's a rocky island called Patmos in the middle of the Aegean Sea. This 90-year-old man is ripped from his home, taken to that rocky island, and he's, he's placed there. And as a 90-year-old man, he is now spending his time on this horrible island, spending his time on Alcatraz, basically breaking rocks. And there he has this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapters uh, 2 and 3, Jesus appears to him and he says, before I tell you what's going to take place in the future, there are seven churches about 60 miles away from here on the mainland. I want you to write a letter. I'm going to tell you what to write. You write it down. And when people come to visit you, they're going to take this letter back to the mainland and they're going to pass these letters out to these seven churches. Now, these seven letters have three meanings. Okay, here you go. First meaning is this. It's written to specific churches that operated about 2,000 years ago. Okay, that's the first meaning. These are specific letters to specific churches. There's a second meaning, though. As you read about these churches and Christians, you find traits of churches and Christians that transcend all time. You'll be reading some of this stuff, and you're like, that applies to some of us today. And so it's kind of general statements to Christians and churches. But there's also a third meaning, I think. Prophetic scholars who study the book of Revelation say as you look at these seven letters, you see a progression of the seven church ages from the time of Jesus Christ to the second coming of Jesus Christ. For example, today we'll read about the book of or the, the church at Ephesus. They really describe what was going on in the book of Acts. The very last church is the church at Laodicea, a lukewarm compromising church that Jesus says, I want to throw up. I want to spit you out of my mouth. And that was probably the church that's going to be here on planet earth when Jesus Christ comes back. And as you read, honestly, you read, um, you read the description of the church at Laodicea. It sounds just like the American church. I think we're living in the last days. I think we are living in the Laodicean age. And I think Jesus is coming back soon. Okay. So I want you to see this revelation chapter two, verse one, Jesus says this. Now, John, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Stop right there. He says, write this to the angel at the church at Ephesus. Now, who is that? Is there a guardian angel that is assigned every church? It could be, although that doctrine is not taught in the Bible, but it could be there's an angel assigned to this church. Here's what I think it means. The, the Greek word angel is angelos. It means messenger. So here's what he's saying. John, write this letter, and it's going to be delivered to the messenger, the man who delivers messages at the church at Ephesus. Who would that be? The the, the pastor. The Bible's big on pastoral leadership. So I think what he's saying is, John, the angel is that pastor at that church. So listen, I'm not big on titles. You don't want to call me pastor. Just call me Chad. And some of y'all say, well, you know, my grandma won't let me call pastor by the first name, so i got to call you Pastor Chad. Call me Chad. Call me Pastor Chad, or according to this, you can just call me your little angel. Okay, that's what I am. <laughs> and uh, write it to the pastor at the church at Ephesus. 
Ephesus was one of the greatest cities in the Roman Empire. I think it's like the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. Pergamos was the capital of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But, uh, but Ephesus was by far the most influential city. And I can say a lot about it, but here's the one thing about Ephesus. It was the center of Diana worship. Uh, in, in the ancient world. Diana was the most widely worshipped deity in the ancient world. And her temple was right there at Ephesus. In fact, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And um, now you'd think goddess Diana, she'd be this beautiful statue or whatever. She was actually a hideous looking creature. Uh, she looked look like a cow or a buffalo. She had all the, I'm not trying, she had all these udders because, you know, life-giving milk flowed from her and all this kind of stuff. And what happened to that temple, I, I can't even begin to describe to you. There were literally thousands of prostitutes in that temple. And people come from all over the place, including that city, to that temple to have relations with these prostitutes because they felt that in that sex act, it brought them closer to the gods and goddesses, and they would cut each other. And in fact, there was a, uh, a contemporary who lived at that time, Heraclitus, he said, quote, the morals of the temple were worse than the morals of animals, for even dogs do not mutilate each other. So here's what happened. If people are part of that pagan society, they get saved, they leave that mess, and now they're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church at Ephesus. Uh, probably Acts chapter 18, we see that there's a, a Christian couple, Aquila and Priscilla, that settled in that town, and they're probably the ones that first started sharing the gospel. And a man named uh, Apollos, one of the greatest preachers of the ancient world, he was a leader there at the church at Ephesus. At Ephesus. The apostle Paul came, and in Acts chapter 19, he preaches the gospel. He starts the church. He's there for three years. And so Apollos was a leader there. The apostle Paul was a leader there. And in fact, just to kind of connect the dots in your Bible, the book of Ephesians in your Bible, it's the letter that Paul wrote to that church, the church there at Ephesus. When Paul leaves, uh, he installs his protege. Anybody know what his protege's name is? Timothy. Timothy is the pastor at that church. He's having a hard time pastoring, so Paul writes 1st and 2nd Timothy in your Bible to tell him how to pastor that church there at Ephesus. And then uh, after uh, Timothy, Tychicus pastored, and finally John himself, tradition says, pastored. John, remember he's the one at the foot of the cross, Jesus is dying, he says, John, take care of my mom. John brings Mary into his own home, takes care of her, and when he becomes the pastor there at Ephesus, tradition says he brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, there with him. So that kind of connects all the dots for you. So uh, Ephesus of the seven churches that they write letters to, it's the mother church. It's the most prestigious church, and all these other churches were probably planted out of uh, the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, church, I know your works, your labor... Your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and found them liars, and you've persevered, and have had patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. I mean, it's a great church. I love y'all, but if I couldn't pastor this church, I'd want to pastor that church. Because here's the church at Ephesus, number one, it was a productive church. Look at verse two. Jesus says, I know your works. I know your labor. Verse 3, and you have labored for my name's sake and have not grown weary. They worked hard. Now, here's a challenge. Because we, do we have to earn our salvation? Do we have to do anything to earn it? Do we have to do anything to deserve it, church? No. 
Salvation is given us by grace, not through works. You're a sinner. You say to God, I'm a sinner, but I believe that man Jesus died on the cross of my sins and rose from the grave, and I turn from my sins, and I just trust in him, and at that moment, you're saved. Now, here's the problem. You and I get really nervous because we're good Protestants. We get really nervous when we start talking about works. And we say things like this. No, no, no. By grace are you saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God. It's not by works. And all that is true. But can I read you the rest of that passage? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And you can't stop right there. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that? If you are truly saved, you will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me. If you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, you ought to be working harder than everybody else, not for your salvation, but out of your salvation. And that's what happened to these people. They were working hard. And yet if we're not careful, our busyness, our serving Jesus can take the place of our relationship with Jesus. I see it happen all the time. I see Christians working hard for Jesus, but that love for Jesus has grown cold. And that's what had happened to these people. It can happen in the ministry. Folks, there have been times in my life where my ministry has gotten in the way of my relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a horrible place to be at. In fact, I was listening to a... Um, a pastor that talked to a, a group of, of uh, a small group of pastors a while back. If I told you his name, a lot of y'all would recognize him. But he talked about the same thing. He talked about his ministry, and he said, um, "He said, look, he said, you young pastors, you, you see these big conferences with these big name preachers preaching. You want to be at those conferences and preach at those conferences." He said, "I have been in the green rooms of the green rooms of those conferences, and they're empty. There's no talk about Jesus." There's no worshiping the Lord. Just kind of sitting around talking, shop talk. And he said, I got sucked into that mess. He said, I remember years ago when I got this national award because my church had planted all these churches. And he said, there's all these pastors gathered, national award. They call me up on the platform. They give me the trophy for planting all these churches. And he said, you know what was going through my mind? Not praise Jesus, not how many people have been saved, not how the kingdom of God has been advanced. What went through my mind is good. I'm glad I beat pastor so-and-so this year. It's a bad place to be at. And so Jesus says, yeah, you're a productive church. You work hard. Now, let me say this, because we got hard workers here. I'm not downgrading your work. I thank God for the hard workers we have here. In fact, I read this, and then I heard John Maxwell say this years ago. Do you know if you want your church to grow, who the most important people are? It's not the pastor. People put up with bad preaching, as you know. It's not a pastor. It's not a worship person. He said, if you want your church to grow, the two most important people are your children's workers and your first impression people, your ushers, your greeters, the people at the door, people in your parking lot. Because people will form their impression of the church by the first people they meet, and those are the first people they meet. And so i got to say something to you people who stand at the door and work in the parking lot. You parking people, it's going to get hot soon. You're going to be sweaty and smelly. In the wintertime, you're out there freezing at 6.30 in the morning. I want to say thank you. God's using you to grow this church. You're doing a great job. So it was a productive church. And then secondly, it was a persevering church. Look at verse 3. And you have persevered 
and have patience. I, I like that Greek word, persevere. It's hupomeno. Hupo means under. Meno means to remain. It literally means to remain steady under a burden. What Jesus is saying is some of y'all are about to lose your job because you're following me, but you're not tucking tail and running. You're standing strong. Some of y'all are getting all kinds of grief because you follow me. You're about to go through persecution, but you are standing strong. You are a persevering church. Now, church, can I say this because I know I've bellyached and whined a little bit. Y'all do understand we're not going through persecution yet. Y'all do understand this is not persecution, right? Because we whine a lot. We're, being per- we're not being persecuted. The American only the American Well, you know, my swimming pool liner has a hole in it, but Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. That's not tribulation. My Mercedes had a flat tire on the way to work, but Jesus said we would face persecution. That's not persecution. We don't know what persecution is, but it's coming. It's coming. And they experienced it, and they stayed steady. In fact, I love, y'all, y'all know I've got a man crush on Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor back in the Victorian age in London, England. And uh, Spurgeon, I love his description of perseverance better than anybody else's. Listen to this. Here's his definition or his description of perseverance. Spurgeon says, scarcely in politics, in business, or in religion have you got a real man. You see a lot of things which are called men who turn the way the wind blows, a number of preachers that turn north, south, east, and west, I pray to God to send a few men with what the Americans call grit in them. Men who, when they know a thing to be right, will not turn away or turn aside or stop. Men who will persevere all the more because there are difficulties to meet or foes to encounter who stand all the more true to their master because they are opposed. Who, the more they are thrust into the fire, the hotter they become. Who, just like the bow, the further the string is drawn, the more powerfully it will send forth its arrows. And so the more they are trodden upon, the more mighty will they become in the cause of truth against error. Isn't that great? And now is this church, productive church, you're a persevering church. It was a perceptive church. Look at verse two. Jesus, here's something else I love about you. You, you, can, you cannot bear those who are evil... And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and found them to be liars. Verse 6, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now watch this. About 40 years before, Paul had written to the same church. And in Acts chapter 20, as he's leaving this church, he says, after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in from the outside and try to tear this church up. And they had never forgotten that. And, and Jesus says, here's the thing, you test fake apostles. What, what does he mean? In those days, a guy would come to the church and say, hey, everybody, before Pastor Chad comes up and talks, I want you to know I've been sent here from the apostle Peter. And Peter wanted me to tell you all that um, Jesus is not fully God. He's half God, half man, not fully God. And he'd teach heresy. And this church knew their Bible so well, they're like, that's not from Peter. He didn't send you. God comes and say, well, you know, I'm from John the Apostle, and John's got this new ministry thing going on over here, and he wants to raise some money. So John asked me to come to y'all to raise some money, and they're like, no, no, that, you're, you're not from John. Jesus said, y'all had guts. You stand up against stuff like that. Hey, some of y'all going to need to do the same thing. I'm not trying to be mean or nasty, but just because something was printed on the Elijah list doesn't mean it comes from God. Is the microphone on, y'all? Okay, I don't know if y'all, Okay. Just because somebody says I'm a prophet doesn't mean they're a prophet sent from God. In fact, I'm now to the point where if somebody says to me, trust me, I'm a Christian businessman. I want to run as fast as I can away from that person. And if somebody says to me, 
I am a prophet. I want to say, oh dear, uh, I got a great church you can go to outside of this church. I just, look, these people had that discerning spirit. They knew truth from error. And then he says this, verse six, you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now who's the Nicolaitans? We're not quite sure. It could be one of two things. The, the word Nicolaitan, Nikao, we get the word Nike from that, means victory. Laos means people. It literally was this whole division of clergy and people. I'm a pastor. I'm a reverend. I'm a little bit better than you. That could be what he means by the Nicolaitans. But Clement of Alexandria, who lived about this time, said, no, the Nicolaitans were the sect of a man named Nicholas who came to the church and said, hey, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Yes. Our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. Yes. So you can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with and do whatever you want to do. That, that was the Nicolaitans. In fact, Clement says this. Clement says the Nicolaitans were so wicked and so evil and so perverted, they had the morals of goats leading a life of self-indulgence. And we... You understand that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is still alive and well in the American church. Just last week, two weeks ago, some, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America installed their first transgender bishop. A major denomination has wandered so far from the truth, they now have a transgender bishop. That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I want to tell you something. You get away from the word of God, you get into stuff like that. In fact, um, just before COVID, I remember riding down the road, there's a church near my house, and they had a big banner out front. Bring your pets to church next week, and we're going to have a special blessing of the pets service, blessing of the animal service. And uh, I, I saw that, I said, well, you know what, that's, that's what happens when you get away from the Word of God. You get lesbian bishops baptizing cats, and that's, that's the American church. And they stood up against that. And so Jesus says, you, you, you're a great church. You're a productive church. You're a persevering church. You're a perceptive church. Verse 4, but nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. In other words, on the balance sheet, you've done all these great things, but it's negated by the fact that there is no longer a passionate love relationship between you and me is what Jesus is saying. And again, 40 years before Paul had written these same people, and he, he ends his letter in Ephesians 6.24 by saying this, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. In other words, 40 years before Paul says, as I look at this church at Ephesus, there's so many people who just purely love the Lord Jesus Christ. And there may have been some of those same people now that Jesus says 40 years later, yeah, but your love has grown cold. Listen to me. We... We make Christianity a lot more complicated than we need to. Christianity, boiled down to its essence, is simply this, loving the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the greatest commandment of the Old Testament is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the Old Testament. Things don't change when you come to the New Testament. It's still the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father and mother more than me is not even worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He said, this walk is, you love me more than anybody else. And in fact, the apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. He says, it's our love for Jesus, the love of Christ that compels us, that motivates us, that pushes us forward.
Do you see what he's saying? It all goes back to a love relationship. I love what Peter says. First Peter chapter one, verse eight. He says, here's why I love you guys. Because even though you haven't seen Jesus, you love Jesus. That's Christianity. Beloved, when that goes, everything else goes with it. It's dangerous. Listen to me. It is dangerous to halfway love Jesus. Some of y'all think that I'm, I'm pretty good with Jesus now because I'll throw some little guilt money into the offering plate and I do my church thing on Sunday morning and I'm good. Um, it doesn't work that way. In fact, I, uh, I told you last week what's bothering me is every week I'm seeing a new Christian leader walk away from Jesus. I saw that several years ago when, uh, y'all remember Joshua Harris, he wrote that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, whatever. He, he was a rising star in evangelicalism and walked away from Jesus and said, I don't, I don't believe him anymore. Abraham Piper, John Piper's son, is now probably the most articulate anti-Christian voice in America today. He walked away from the faith. And, and it reminds me of this, this observation made by that theologian, Helmut He said this, listen to this, the anti-Christian is always a half-Christian gone mad. It's pretty powerful. The anti-Christian is always a half-Christian gone mad. The thing doesn't work if you just say, well, I give Jesus my Sunday. Look, look, look. let me do the lawyer talks, I won't get sued. Allegedly, it is being reported that Bill Gates, y'all know who Bill Gates is, had an arrangement with his wife and said, um, honey, 51 weekends out of the years, I am yours. You can use my money. I'll be home. I'll do the husband thing. 51 weeks out of the year. Have y'all read this? But one weekend out of the year is my weekend, and I can go, and I'm going to spend it with my ex-girlfriend, I think in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Do you know that? And she, now, if she got upset, why are you so upset, honey? 51 weeks out of the year is... It's yours. It's just one weekend for me and my ex-girlfriend. Why are you upset? And some of y'all saying, why did, why did she put up with it? Let me ask you, why should Jesus put up with it from you? Thanks for joining us for today's Truth Unfiltered broadcast. We invite you to join us again next time for more great teaching from Pastor Chad Harvey, teaching pastor at Cross Assembly Church of Raleigh. I believe gathering together is an integral part of the life of a Christian. We're meant to live in community with others. What drew me to Cross Assembly is the community, the fellowship. I was eager to get that family feel and to have that moment of coming into church and just knowing these are my people, these are the people of God. And one way that I felt that across was through groups. Being able to come here and feeling like that group of people, they were my people, they were my family. Groups are important because it is a way to learn how to be the church and not just go to church. It's one of those things that definitely makes you feel a sense of belonging, understanding that you're not alone. One of the most impactful semesters we've had has been a semester where almost everyone in our group was going through big life changes. There was sickness, loss of job. As one person shared, we prayed. Then another person was encouraged and they shared and we prayed. Throughout that semester, we saw God move in amazing ways. We have this saying that friends become family. That's what we've experienced through gathering together. You're finding people who are serious about their faith, who want to grow deeper, who 
also are looking out for you like a church family supposed to look out for each other. My relationship with God has increased dramatically. Being connected to the group really allows people to challenge me. That general accountability for my prayer life and kind of checking that. My favorite aspect of groups is serving. Serving is really a chance to humble yourself. You're no longer focused inwardly. You're no longer focused on your life, your problems. You're focused on how can God use me to bless this other person. The more we can get together and align with the vision of building and sending out those spirit-filled agents, the more community will see the true love of Jesus. When you serve together with someone, it not only helps you to no longer be inward focused, but it can also strengthen a bond between the friend that you're serving with because both of you are humbling yourselves in order to help someone else. It can create memories that you'll never forget. If you are not in a group, I strongly encourage you to be a part of the family. You don't want to miss these opportunities to grow together, to gather together, to fellowship, and to serve one another. If you would like more information about Pastor Chad or Cross Assembly, visit crossassembly.org. Again, that's crossassembly.org. You're always welcome to visit us at any of our locations for Sunday morning services. You'll find locations and service times on our website. To support this ministry, text CROSS to 45777. That's CROSS to 45777. Join us again next time for more teaching with Pastor Chad Harvey, teaching pastor of Cross Assembly Church in Raleigh, and more of God's truth unfiltered. Unfiltered.